I remember a meeting with somebody who said um, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. And I thought, what? Mm. Like, you know, here you are in a hospital, but literally dying. Like, you're literally going to die any minute, and you're seeing that this is the best thing that ever happened to you, and you wouldn't trade it for anything. And, you know, they would say things like, um, you know, I, I used to be just a terrible husband, a terrible father. I didn't care about anybody but myself. I just cared about my job. I was just working all the time. But this diagnosis, this cancer forced me to be the husband that I should have been, forced me to be the father that I should have been. And it's given me the opportunity to reconcile with my children and restore those relationships. You're listening to Justice Matters with Tim Buxton, a podcast inspiring the fight for a world where everyone belongs. G'day. Today, we're going to be talking about post-traumatic growth with clinical psychologist Carl Gady. He is the founder of Tutapona, which is a nonprofit with a vision to lead individuals that have been affected by war and conflict to emotional recovery. Now, we're going to learn in this episode about the ways that they have been doing that in places like Uganda and Iraq. In fact, alongside fellow clinical psychologist Dr. Robbie Sondrager, You Belong has teamed up with Carl and Robbie to deliver the groundbreaking GROW program, which is providing trauma recovery and rehabilitation to newly settled refugee families here in Australia. Carl and his remarkable family are an incredible example of living out their lives with compassion and courage to bring justice and healing to those that have been affected by war and trauma for so many years. And it truly is my pleasure to have this conversation and to share it with you today. Here is my friend, Carl. Well, Carl, long time no see. How's it going over there in Wisconsin? Yeah, it's going well. We are um, gearing up for winter. It's starting to get cold. We've already had some snow fly. Um, You guys over there, you're getting ready for summer, I'm sure. But over here, it's uh, starting to get cold. Yeah, man, it is so cold over there. I mean, that's like, it's where the Green Bay Packers play and usually it's like uh, snow and ice on the field, isn't it? It's uh, it's yeah. a very cold part of the world in the winter, but you have beautiful summers too, which a lot of people don't realize, hey? Yeah, that's true. We've had a beautiful fall. I mean, even just like we had snow, it got cold, but then it warmed up really nice. I was in shorts and a t-shirt yesterday. Um, so it, it's been really nice, but today got really cold again and we're starting to gear up for winter. It's nice to talk about the weather, isn't it? After all the other discussions and you're in the heart of, I mean, how is America going right now? I mean, you guys are right in the middle of it. How, how are you feeling personally, man, about, about all that's going on with the elections and mm. <sighs> what's going on in your, your heart and mind, man? I'd love to, love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I think I think I would just sum it up by saying I'm just really sad in a lot of ways for um, not just the state of our nation, but the state of the world with 
the, of course, the elections, you know, were, this is a really divisive time. The elections were difficult, and, um, you know, people were just fighting about stuff. But even before the elections, just uh, so many things going on with racial injustices and um, and just our hearts are breaking for our brothers and sisters that um, that just don't have it as good as as I have it, and so um, and, and our hearts are really breaking for the sins of of uh, of of us and our ancestors and the sins that that just run rampant and leave hurting people behind in their wake. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it other than just kind of this profound sadness and grief um, for what's been happening. Mm. And thanks for sharing that. I think that's, you know, obviously a, um, there's just a lot going on for people, whether it be COVID and the way that's impacted their their health and the health of loved ones or their, you know, jobs and financial situation there's you're right there's this sense of of so much pain and division in the world and i think sadness that is a really um really apt word for this moment yeah and um and you're certainly one that knows how to carry that grief and that sadness and to carry help others to carry that well um as a as a clinical psychologist yourself and the, the work that you, you've you done and that you are doing and continue to do around the world in some of the most hurting um, and, uh, let's just say, um, suffering places um, on the planet at the moment. And uh, so I'm thankful for your time. First of all, it was wonderful being able to be with you last night, well, my last night, your early morning doing some training with some wonderful new kind of programs that you've got launching. And uh, mm. before we get into that, though, which um, I'd love to just talk uh, a lot about, uh, it's just, I think, so crucial and critical to this moment of how we address this great sadness, how do we address these great injustices uh, that we're mm. experiencing and seeing. Um, I want to take you back to that night uh, on the roof uh of our house in Kurdistan, Iraq. Uh, we must have just met that day. And uh, we s were sitting up there with you, with our mutual friend, Robbie Sonderegger, and we are just on the roof chatting mm. and talking and, and just dreaming about what the future might hold in the midst of uh, ISIS and in the midst of craziness that was happening all around us. What comes to mind when you think about that night, Carl? Yeah, that that was an exciting time. You know, that was my first time to the Middle East at all, and then my first time to Iraq. So, um, just learning and seeing it all, and just taking it all in. And I remember being really struck by this feeling of when you're there in a place like Iraq, you just feel how. Uh, how ancient it is you can just feel these these sacred lands these these mm -hmm. this land that people have been walking on for thousands of years and i found it incredible just being there and meeting the people and then of course 
uh, learning about the culture and just things are different. Even when you talk, talk about us being on the roof of your house, it's hard it's hard from this context here in the United States to really even understand what that was like. I mean, the houses have in that flat roof on the top, and it's really like a, a picnic area. You go up on the roof and hang out. You had this nice setup up there and uh, just a great place on the roof of your house to hang out and have a little party. Um, and I remember being with you up there and your family and Robbie and uh, and and sitting on the ledge of that of that house and leaning over and you know, you feel the warm air the warm kind of Middle Eastern air and then looking out on this really sacred land and this this place that that is has had so much pain and had so much joy for hundreds of years and then thinking about what if what if my family did something like your family did, and we just up and moved to Iraq. Um, and Robbie asked me at that point, and I hadn't thought about it at that point because my whole heart had been Africa. You know, I had really just thought up until that point, really, it was all about Africa. And uh, we longed to see people healed and people transformed. But really, my mind had just been on Africa. So then Robbie asked me, could you ever see yourself here? And I remember just looking around and and seeing how your family lived uh, and how you guys were doing. And you were doing so well and had a great ministry. You guys were impacting lives. And I thought, you know, I had never thought about it before, but I I could see it, I guess. If God called me here, I I could we could do it. We could be here. Um, and But it was... Iraq is one of those places that it sure is different than, than people think. And when I, even to this day, when I come back now and I, I tell people what it was like there in Iraq and uh, how I loved it, how my family loved it. My daughters just loved being there and living in Iraq. People will say, man, that's just, I never would have thought Iraq was like that. It's just from what you see on the news and what you hear um, in different reports, the images that you conjure up in your mind it's it's far from the reality mm. and it was such a beautiful place such a warm lovely hospitable place uh our family loved being there and then uh being so close to the front lines with isis and so close to the refugee camps and the idp camps where mm. we were working it was incredible to be you know that close to just a few minutes we could be in the camps working with people and hanging out in their tents with them, drinking mm. tea and just being with them. That was incredible. Whereas mm. in Africa, most of the refugee camps we worked at were hours away and it, you know, took quite a quite a while to get there. So it was it just felt really good to be much more in the action there in Iraq. Mm. You know, you mentioned something about the landscape and the mountains and this sacred land, but um, also this land that even within itself carries the trauma. And you and I kind of have a shared passion of adventure sports. And I know you love rock climbing and mountain climbing. And, and I had the opportunity to climb some of the highest mountains there. And, and we just had lots of lots of fun together. But as you walk on those mountains, every now and then you will see a sign that say, you know, there's landmines in this area. 
and you discover quickly the locals will tell you that there are anywhere between five to sometimes 15 the the numbers seem to change but mil- five to 15 million undocumented landmines scattered throughout these mountains mm-hmm. in the wars between iran and iraq we lived right on the border both you and i our homes were fairly close to those borders and with turkey as well and you're reminded of of the the blood spilt and and the fighting and the pain and these mountains that are at one point a refuge also are a place of of complete destruction and suffering and pain and you realize that the land carries that trauma and the people generationally carry that trauma and and you talked about your work and you touched on it just now briefly in Africa uh, in particular Uganda, and then you came to Iraq um, to really address the, that acute um, crisis that was happening, in particular with ISIS and, and, and the Syrian conflict in general that had been going on for, for almost a decade or seven, six years before that. Um, can we kind of rewind your journey a little bit? I mean, what what takes you from, I understand it, kind of a, a family-run clinical psychologist to take in your family to Africa um, and founding Tutapona. Mm. Tell me, I'd love to hear that story. If you could do that in, in five or 10 minutes, I just, I know that's the really hard thing to do is to kind of give you that time frame. But if you can just kind of give us that, that little journey that you took on, um, be great. Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, my wife and I, Julie, we, uh, we didn't set out to start an organization. We had no plans of starting uh, an organization. Uh, we had studied social work because we did want to help people. We wanted to be in a profession where, we, where what we did mattered. We didn't want to just get a job and make money. We wanted to be involved in helping people. So we both studied social work, got our master's degree, we had various jobs in all different kinds of settings, and our work just kind of became more and more clinical. And uh, we were licensed psychotherapists. Uh, eventually, we opened a private practice doing individual and marriage and family therapy. I also worked at an outpatient clinic uh, with for a full time job, and so I had a really good good pay, good benefits. We had a nice house, two nice cars, two beautiful daughters, and. Life was good. Sounds we pretty good, man. American that sounds dream. like the American dream right there. Yeah. Yeah, life was good. We had um, we were involved in a good church. And uh, at this point, Julie was uh, staying at home with our two young daughters. So I could I was uh, two minutes away from home. I could come home for lunch every day, hang out with my beautiful family, go back to work. Um, it was really good. But then – we heard about this situation in northern Iraq, and we heard about this. It just do you mean northern like Uganda? Something inside of us broke. I'm sorry, I mean northern Uganda. Yeah, yeah you're right, yeah. Uh, northern Uganda. So um, at that time, this was around 2005, uh, 2006. There was the rebel group, the LRA or Lord's Resistance Army, that was just wreaking havoc on northern Uganda, and. Uh, they were doing things that were inconceivable to me. 
at the time. I mean, the rebels were doing things like cutting off people's lips, cutting off their nose or their ears. They were, you know, of course, taking over whole villages, uh, raping and looting. And, and they were taking young children as child soldiers. And there were reports that there were between um, 35 and 50,000 children in northern Uganda taken as child soldiers and the girls as sex slaves. And um, every night, children would commute in to town centers like the town of Gulu to try to seek shelter and be safe. There were thousands of children every single night leaving their homes, their mothers and their fathers, just to sleep under verandas and in bus parks and in hospitals just to try to be safe. Um, and the Acholi people in northern Uganda were caught in the middle of this. Uh, the UN, under uh, the United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, called it the world's worst unattended humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. When Julie and I heard about this, like I said, it just felt like something broke inside of us. It felt like, how can we not do something? We have to do something. Now that we know, we can't just bury our heads in the sand and pretend that we didn't hear about this. So, uh, I wanted to make a trip there and see if for see for myself what was going on, what the situation was like. Ninety percent of the population, or two point one million people, were living in IDP camps, mm. internally displaced people camps. So I finally uh, found somebody that was going there, and I made a trip at the end of two thousand and six, and I went to these IDP camps and and I saw what was happening, and there was. The UN was there, and there were there was food distribution, and there was clothing and housing, but there was nobody addressing the emotional effects of their experiences. Mm. So, uh, came back, uh, and in 2007, I took Julie there, and in 2008, we just sold everything, and we moved to Uganda, and we started Tutapona, mm. with the sole purpose of addressing the emotional effects of war and conflict. So, Tutapona existed for the sole purpose of doing mental health and psychosocial support with communities that were affected by war and conflict. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I say that we had a good life in America, but uh, we cashed it in for a great life uh, by going to Uganda mm. and by being involved in this work. And there was just nothing like meeting with people in IDP camps, in their home, out under a mango tree, just providing a group-based trauma rehabilitation program. And there's just nothing like coming back at the end of that two weeks and people that were suicidal at the beginning of that Mm -hmm. program, people that were ready to kill themselves, would be dancing for joy and singing as I pulled into the village. And there was just something uh, incredible about being in that setting, uh, what the UN was calling the world's worst unattended humanitarian crisis and bringing healing and wow. restoration. So uh, that's really how Two Diploma started. Carl, you're giving me goosebumps as you tell, and I've heard you tell this story a, f- a mm. few times already, um, and it brings me back to those moments of being with families in, in Iraq as well and the incredible... Um, richness and fullness of life of being and being able to walk alongside those people. Now, I know for you, 
um, this became very personal in a in a very special way for you as a family when you came across uh, a special girl who you would later take on to be your your daughter and uh, I'd love for you to share the fullness of that story um, because it is mm. just so beautiful and I think just ties in so well um, to you know the work that you're doing and, and who you are um, and I forgot to mention not just a daughter a, a son or grandson yeah uh, but yeah. I'll let you tell the story yeah, it, this really was a miracle. Um, you know, being in that setting in northern Uganda, there were thousands and thousands of children that we were surrounded by that had been child soldiers, that had been abducted, that had been taken to the bush, um, that had gone through horrific experiences. Uh, thousands of children that were night commuters. Um, but God brought one girl into our path. Um, she was 14 years old and she was pregnant at the time and uh something just clicked and god told us that this is uh that we're supposed to help this girl and you know you can't help everybody there's thousands of children there that have been deeply affected and hurt in terrible ways but god just told us that we're supposed to help this one so we got involved in her life and we um, met with some social workers that, that were really asking for help and said, could you be involved? So we pursued with the, we, we approached her and just said, look, we heard about your situation. We don't know if there's anything we can do to help, but we just want you to know that we'd, we'd love to help if we can. And we didn't know if that meant just paying for her hospital bills so she could give birth in a, in a hospital um, or what that looked like. But as we ended up meeting with her and some of her uh, family members that were around, it seemed like there was much more that was needed than that. Uh, she had been raped and um, by a 21-year-old uh, when she was 14. And um, her, the, her uncle that she was living with was physically abusive. And um, when we showed up at her mud hut, we literally had to drive – there's one person who knew where she was, and so he drove us, and we drove down a dirt road and turned off for miles and turned off that to a little dirt path, a footpath, really. We drove down that with our car as far as we could drive until we couldn't go anymore, got out and walked a bit further, and she was literally there barefoot and pregnant and cooking out over a fire in a big pot trying to care for nine children that um, her auntie had had that she was responsible to care for and um anyway uh we met with the government and they said uh you can foster her and so take her to kampala and so uh we did and she lived with us we pursued guardianship we got legal guardianship um she came to our family when she was pregnant and she she gave birth six weeks later to um a beautiful boy wow. elijah is his name mm-hmm and uh, there were so many miracles in this story along. I, I, I can't share them all, but a, a couple of quick ones. Um, we, Uganda has a law that you can't adopt unless you fostered them for three years. You've had physical custody of the child for three years. So we said, well, okay, we'll do that. She'll be 17 at the time, but 
we'll do that. We'll abide by the laws of Uganda. Um, well, we went to the U.S. Embassy at one point to try to get her a visa to travel home with us uh, to America one summer, and they denied it. But we were talking to the consular, and she told us, by the way, you realize that um, the U.S. will never recognize your adoption unless it's finalized before her 16th birthday. So I didn't realize that. And so I left there right away and called an attorney and said, is there any way? This was six days before her 16th birthday. Oh, my. Wow. And there was no way that this would, would happen. There's no way. It wasn't even possible for that to happen. But it did. The day before her 16th birthday, the Uganda courts finalized adoption, and then that was recognized. And then another miracle was for her to get U.S. citizenship. She had to be in a – we had to have had adopted her for two years, and she had to be under 18. So we literally had a one-day window where we could apply for her to get U.S. citizenship as a child of U.S. citizens. And that all worked out. And it, so there were just numerous miracles along oh the way. Goodness. But Judith is an amazing. She's now 24 years old. Um, she's she's doing incredible. Uh, she's living here in the U.S. with us. And um, her son, Elijah, is, you know, technically my grandson, but really he's my son. Yeah. I'm the only father he's really ever known. And he calls me dad. I coach his little soccer teams and I coach his basketball team and I'm, you know, we hang out all the time and uh, he lives with us. He's now nine years old, uh, just a beautiful, amazing boy. And both Judith and Elijah have been a huge blessing to our family. Oh man, when when I got the chance to visit you guys, um, gosh, when was that? A year or so ago, I can't remember now, but in your home and just to see both Judith and Elijah, it's a great little setup. They've got their own kind of like granny flat, kind of own separate living area where they kind yeah. of do life together. But it's just so in, intertwined with you. And he's racing around on his rollerblades. And Judith is such a mature girl. You know, just it's just incredible. The the hope and the joy in your family was just something something special to to witness and to see. And, but as you, as you share, there's a lot of hard work, a lot of hurdles, a lot of obstacles, a lot of, hey, we need a miracle in that. Man. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, thank Judith too. And, and Elijah, I know, um, that's, that's, um, a gift to be able to be willing for that story to be shared to, to, to others and to our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I tend to forget even sometimes all that Judith has gone through. I mean, she's doing incredibly well, and um, but I forget all that she's gone through sometimes. Yeah. Being shot at by the rebels, being chased by the rebels, mm. having to sleep out overnight in the bush, hiding out as the rebels are approaching, being in an orphanage, uh, sleeping in night community centers, being homeless, living on the streets. I mean, just all that she's gone through, it's unbelievable, but she's doing incredibly well. It's just amazing to see how she's uh, grown and and matured. Oh, man. It it does, and just, yeah, when you just talked, I had this picture of her just, you know, squatting barefoot on the ground, trying to cook dinner for nine other children that are in her care at such a young, tender age. Um, 
what resilience, what courage, what um, – and to think of these things, it kind of reminds me of, of the very heart of what Tutapona is all about right now. It's about delivering mm-hmm. these programs of resilience to those that have lost everything, lost their homes, whether they be refugees and or victims of war. And um, we had the opportunity when we first met on that rooftop of talking about delivering this groundbreaking program called grow which takes this uh-huh. idea and i'll let you as the as the trained professional here explain this takes this idea of post-traumatic growth this idea of cultivating resiliency in the face of uh-huh. of trauma in the face of suffering and before um it takes root in people's lives so um one maybe you could introduce this this program grow and and you've kind of got a, a new um i don't know if you can or, or want to talk about program for for children as well heroes that really harnesses this idea of post-traumatic growth and maybe give us a bit of a, a scientific and uh, psychological uh breakdown of of what that is too that'd be great yeah well man tim you you did a good job i uh should leave it to you to explain it um but yeah, it's really that idea that, you know, when trauma affects us, when we're impacted by significantly stressful events, negative events, oftentimes we get knocked backwards. Um, and so with that, there develops a lot of times these negative symptoms, things like uh, nightmares, night terrors, flashbacks, um, you know, anxiety, depression. And so Oftentimes, what we try to do is then alleviate the symptoms of that trauma, try to help people sleep better at night, try to help them not have nightmares, reduce anxiety, um, things like that. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's um, I don't want to say it's hopeless, but that, that, that's not very encouraging to, to try to just, if all you're doing in life is trying to stop the negative things from happening, mm. but instead... This idea of post-traumatic growth is actually saying that, yes, these events are terrible. They're awful. They're horrible events that we would never wish on anybody. But if they could be used as a catalyst for growth in the person's life, we can take something awful and see how how really good things can come out of that. Mm. Um this idea started, you know, I, I first kind of heard about this idea years ago when I was in graduate school. I was uh, living and working on the East Coast, going to graduate school, and I was doing uh, work at Yale New Haven Hospital. And I was working in the oncology ward with uh, patients that were dying from mm. terminal illnesses, cancer, AIDS. And um, so my job was to do individual and uh, family counseling for them and their family members around grief and end-of-life issues. And I remember a meeting with somebody who said, um, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. And I thought, what? Mm. Like, you know, here you are in a hospital, but literally dying, like you're literally going to die any minute, and you're saying that this is the best thing that ever happened to you, and you wouldn't trade it. For anything and you know they would say things like um, you know I, I used to be just 
a terrible husband, a terrible father. I didn't care about anybody but myself. I just cared about my job. I was just working all the time. But this diagnosis, this cancer forced me to be the husband that I should have been, forced me to be the father that I should have been. And it's given me the opportunity to reconcile with my children and restore those relationships. So wow. in my early days of coming to understand post-traumatic growth a little bit, that, that was sort of the framework from which I could see it through and see that, that even something that I would say is a terrible thing, cancer, if it can change the trajectory of my life and help me to actually uh, grow as a result of it, then maybe there's something positive out of that. And so, um, so when we started developing this new program called Grow, mm. as I started diving into the research around post-traumatic growth, and Robbie and I, as we as we were looking at this in the early stages of starting to try to develop grow, man, I was really drawn to that literature around post-traumatic growth. And what if there's ways that we could help people to, to, to use this as a catalyst for growth in their life? And so the research would show that, yes, people get knocked backwards. But there's one group of people that when they get knocked backwards like that, they just kind of stay stuck there in that place, and they never really move back. Mm. And then there's a second group of people that when they get knocked backwards, they can kind of scratch and claw and fight and they can work their way back to a baseline, work mm. their way back to the point where they were before that experience happened. Um, but then there's a third group of people that the research would show that when they get knocked backwards, this third group of people, they actually, their life enters a different trajectory and they actually move beyond where they ever would have been had the not, trauma not occurred. Now, this is, of course, the research shows these are people with or without therapy. This is not necessarily mm. counseling mm. did that for them. People, Some people just inherently grow mm. through those traumatic experiences. Mm. And so we said, okay, well, what is it about that group of people? We want to look at that group and say, What's different about them? Why would they grow? And by the way, it's not growing in spite of the trauma. It's actually tr growing because of the mm -hmm. trauma. That the trauma becomes that catalyst for the growth. Mm -hmm. So when we looked at that group of people, the research would show that they possess certain characteristics. Um, and so we said, well, what if we could help develop those characteristics in people, knowing that those people that possess those characteristics, they're more likely to grow as a result of those traumatic experiences. So that's what the GROW program really mm -hmm. is all about, is about helping to try to facilitate those personal characteristics that will facilitate growth. Now, you know, those, those characteristics are um, things like courage, uh, hope, kindness, mm. um, gratitude. Being grateful mm. for the things that I have. You know, those people that focus on uh, those things that are good in their life that they have to be grateful for really are much more likely to, to grow. Those that are kind, mm. they get outside of themselves. And they're not just focused on all that I've been through, but they say, look at this person. This person could really use uh, some help. And they reach outside of themselves and they extend kindness to somebody else. And then the final characteristic is 
a belief in a God who cares about mm. me. So, so those are the characteristics that we look to try to help foster. Justice Matters is brought to you by You Belong. If you'd like to learn more about their work, empowering refugees to integrate and thrive in Australia, head on over to youbelong.org.au. There you'll find ways to get involved, volunteer and financially get behind the several initiatives they've got going on. There's also a stack of articles and blogs that you'll find there that are really informative and engaging. Now, did you know this podcast is actually a video podcast featured on YouTube? Just search Justice Matters TV on YouTube and watch each episode right there. And while you're there, hit subscribe and get notified each time a new video drops. Um, what are what is unique about the way it's delivered too? I mean, I think that's something that's really, and I don't know if you were going to go there. That's something that I've found really powerful and helpful. You know, a lot of people think this kind of work is done one-on-one in counseling or therapy sessions that you kind of really need that. But there's something beautiful about it being done in community. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could even, and even just the way it's facilitated, it's, it's, it's just yeah, I'd love for our listeners to hear some of that too, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, very, very early on, right when I landed in Uganda, I realized I cannot do therapy with uh, in a Choli person uh, mm. who speaks a different language from a different culture, who's been through vastly different experiences than I have, being chased by the rebels and so forth. And so really the best thing that I can do is to help train and equip a team of local uh, leaders who could facilitate the language and the the program in their own language, in their own culture, with their own people. And so that's what we, we set off to do was to train and equip a local team of staff and then provide ongoing supervision and staff development for them and just empower them to really do, do this program. And it's a group-based program, so there's something really beautiful about coming together as a group. Because we all need one another. Mm -hmm. And building community, restoring community, having people rely on and and count on one another has been amazing. In Uganda, we typically just meet out under a mango tree and gather people together. And we do a group-based program for uh, 10 sessions, so two weeks, five days a week, and uh, being led by our local staff. And our local staff often aren't even professional counselors. Mm. You know, oftentimes we think, oh, a master's degree to be able to do this. Well, I went to Uganda thinking, look, if I, I can train people up uh, to do a program like this, uh, they just need to be teachable. Mm. They need to be ready to learn. And they need to be willing to just care for mm. those people that, that are around them uh, and part of this group. And so... It's worked out extremely well, just training up lay facilitators, uh, but they become very skilled at doing mm. a program like this and and being able to work the group dynamics. Yeah, and you've, as a result, then been able to spread your work all throughout um, Uganda, even into Sudan, and then now into um obviously the Middle East, in particular northern Iraq. And I just love the the vision, the vast vision, the great vision you have to really take uh, 
this work, this critical work, even beyond our shores, even we've been able to adopt it here in Australia. I mean, it's such a privilege to be able to facilitate this program with refugees that have now resettled here and are rebuilding their life, just like your daughter, um, Judith, with her, mm. her son, um, Elijah. They're rebuilding their life and they're getting the tools that they need to keep looking forward. Um, I know you've I mean, you've got plans to to even deliver it throughout America. Like you said, there's there's no place I don't think on this planet where the the value and the um, the powerful lessons that come through this course um, cannot be put to use. Um, can you touch on 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 um, this new venture we've got, which was why I was on a call with you last night. That's really wanting to take it to, to children as well, to really kind of realize, Hey, look, let's not wait till kids are adults. And a lot of this stuff is really set in, in their life and experience. And can you talk about the hero's journey? Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm super excited about this children's program now. So, for a long time, I was nervous about uh, about doing a children's program. I didn't feel like I was a child therapist. You know, I haven't. I've gone through trainings on doing therapy with children and on play therapy, but um, I just I never felt like I was specifically a child therapist, and so I was hesitant to to jump into that. So for years, we were asked to try to look at doing a, a program specifically for children, and for years, children were trying to get into our adult programs, especially in Uganda. Mm. They would. They would kind of sneak in, and and finally, it just got to a point where we said, "Look, yeah, we've got to do this." Especially Uganda being one of the youngest countries on the planet, with fifty uh, percent of the population being under fifteen years old. Oh my goodness! Seventy-five percent of the population is under twenty-five. Wow. So, and 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 the children have grown up knowing nothing except war and conflict. Uh, many of the refugees that we were working with in the camps had been there their entire life. The children. And they never known any difference. So, so we realized, look, it's time. We've got to do this. So we worked uh, and we developed this uh, hero's journey, children's curriculum, really out of the same post-traumatic growth literature, um, using cognitive behavioral therapy uh, as well. And I'm really excited about this because when we can change that trajectory of a person's life when they're so young, mm-hmm. and even if you change it just a little bit, over the course of 10 years, 20 years, man, that child is now in a completely different place than they otherwise would have been. And giving them the tools and the resources to really be able to address those um, experiences when they happen, build up that resiliency. So, and then like you said, Tim, you know, this idea of being able to be in multiple places, Mm. man, God just showed me early on that this is not about me. Like, this cannot be about me, and, and it shouldn't be about me. And so the, the earlier on that I could just let go of all of that, and, and then it, it frees me to empower other folks and train and equip them to do the work because it's never been about me to begin with. This is all about how can we take this to as many people as possible. Now, I wish that I would be out of a job. Someday, if there were no more war or conflicts uh, mm. on the planet, and I was out of a job, I would be the happiest man alive. But uh, I just don't see that happening. There is no shortage 
of need for people to receive emotional healing for the wounds that they've incurred through violence. So, uh, yeah, I, I just want to look at how can we get it to more people in more places around the world. Mm, you know, as we talk, even now, I think uh, there's just so much excitement in me that's like, man, yes, let's do this, Carl. We can do it. And, mm. and, and I've just so valued the ways that we've been able to partner and work together to achieve uh, some of that in the Middle East and here in Australia. And, um, but even as we, we talk, um, you know, and there's this like passion and excitement, there's also this kind of stark realization that it's a lot of hard work. And, mm. and um, you know, you're, you're co-founders of this organization. You're trying to raise the support yourself to be able to do this. There's, there's no kind of bottomless cash pit that just enables you to do whatever you feel. And you feel like there, there's just no end to the need. Um, if only there were resources to do that. And, and I think of some of the people that might be listening and thinking, yes, I want to help, I want to serve, I want to get into this. And even myself with, with the work that we're trying to do here, there can be just, there can be some discouraging moments of thinking, man, I've got all this vision, I want to be able to do this, but somehow it just seems like pushing a cart uphill can you kind of talk into getting real a bit, I guess, here and talk into some of those ex experiences? And, and um, I don't want to kind of shift the mood too much um, because I'm loving it. <laughs> uh, ultimately, um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm like, I, I want to get off this, this call and, 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 and get back on the phone and, and dream up some plans. But, but um, maybe talk into some of the, like, some of the real discouraging low moments and, and maybe what got you through them? Yeah, I mean, yeah, talking about money is always a buzzkill. It's always oh. just really uh, discouraging. But uh, it, it does feel like pushing a cart uphill. But those exciting times are, they do come. And it's always when somebody gives you know, right when we needed it. Mm. Like there's been numerous times where we are just about out of money. We just about need to lay people off. And somebody comes through, a donor, and um, saves us. And uh, it, it's, it's stressful for me living on that, on that edge where I'm teetering, uh, uh, teetering on the point of, you know, um, of having to close shop. Uh, I don't like that. It's super uncomfortable for me. I don't live my life like what, that in my personal life. What do you do life, when you, know? you feel that? What do you do when you, that thought comes through your mind? I mean, that's that's almost like the worst. So, I mean, for me personally, thinking, oh, this might be the end of everything mm -hmm. we've poured our lives into and we know this is what this world leads right now, but somehow it looks like it's coming to an end. What... What is that like? Yeah. Well, you, you know, for me, uh, Tim, our faith is extremely yeah. important to us. And so this this work is from the very beginning. It's all been God's work. Yeah. 
and so and he's got the resources so uh i i just know he's going to come through i just know god's going to come through but it's it is stressful for me and maybe i don't have enough faith (laughs) maybe there's a faith issue um and i just need to have more faith and i wouldn't get stressed about it but i still manage to find myself getting really stressed at times but in my heart i know that god's going to come through and Mm -hmm. he's going to provide and if he doesn't it's his work anyways. It's not mine. And so if he wants it to close down, mm. we'll close down and I'll, I'll go do something else. That, that's not a problem. But um, I, don't, I, I do feel ownership of it. I do feel like this is our baby, Tutapona, that we've nurtured, that we've developed, we've grown and have poured into. But on the other hand, I do hold it loosely that this is God's and um, I would love to see him use it for his glory, however, wherever he wants. And so we're trusting in him to provide the resources for that. Um, but it, it does get it does get difficult. What we're trying to do now is um, have some of these, what we call stones of remembrance, like these times where, where people have come through. I've got to just start writing them down. We've got to document them because there's been numerous times where we are on the brink of, collapse and somebody comes through Mm. god provides and so so going back and remembering those looking at those times that's that's really an Mm. encouragement now not only do we not have money um to do it but usually this is when god calls us to expand Mm -hmm. we don't even have the money to do what we're currently doing we don't know where it's going to come from and now god you're saying expand to this place like so when when we do, and then God shows up and God provides, you know that it was all God. You know it was a miracle. It, so that's a privilege, yeah. seeing miracles, seeing God show up. That is an absolute privilege. And so the those difficult times are, get wearing on me, but, man, I just get so pumped uh, and energized yeah. when we just see God show up and do a miracle. Yeah. Who gets to do that, Tim? Who gets to see yeah. God show up like that, right? I think I think too. It's really it's really important because I think there's other people out there wanting to launch out, wanting to help people, wanting to maybe start a similar work, wanting to go to Africa or whatever it is that their heart is set on this, and to know that hey, even decades into this, it's still going to be tough. It's mm. you're still gonna have to, um, you know, hold tight things, challenges, and it might not be money. It could be relational issues that that come up, or health, or whatever the circumstances that can rock, rock us in this work. Um, to have that courage to move forward, um, yeah, it's something I I appreciate, and I think. You can really, you really do a great job in speaking into. So thanks for, thanks for being candid about just the the real struggles, those moments you have where you feel like it could end. Yeah, thanks, Tim. No, I appreciate that. It, it does get tempting, you know, as you grow and you get larger in size, to say, oh yeah, you know, we we relied on faith back then, but now we're bigger, and now I need to do this, and I need to do this, and we need to put this practice in place. Um. But I've just realized that for us, and I think this probably holds true for everybody, but faith is the answer. You know, that's, we're just trusting in God to provide, and that's been from the beginning. 
And when things are at their worst, that's the time to double down mm-hmm. on faith. You know, now that's the time to say, okay, this is this is what uh, we're called to do is to step out in faith. So now, when it seems like it makes even less sense than ever before, that's the time we got to double down on that. That's the time we got to really, really dive into it because it's either going to we're going to go down in a in a ball of flames or something miraculous is going to happen here. One of the two, but it's not going to be mediocre. It's not going to be in the middle. Um, so, God, we're just trusting in you. Yeah. And we're going to put it all now. So, um, and I love seeing God show up in that place. What a privilege that is, mm, you know? Mm. Seeing God show up in that way. But we're, we're so many times we miss it because we're, we get afraid and we pull yeah. back. And we say, oh, well... So we we step back from that. Yeah, we give into the fear. We give into the the. Oh, sh- we shrink back and dude. Just the other day, I was I just had this real stressful moment, and um, I just was just really overwhelmed, really stressed about a certain situation, and I just remember having to go down. I'm fortunate enough to live near the beach and just go down and just sit and contemplate <laughs> and. Uh, a good friend of mine just said, "Look, just this is when it's this is when you need to lean into trust and faith in this moment, right? Trust and faith now when your stomach is churning, when your mind is thinking it's like losing hope or you know, it was just one of those kind of moments and then there's this picture that came into my mind of like you know how the eagle kicks the the baby out of the nest when it's trying to teach it to fly i mean it just seems like the cruelest thing you could possibly do is to like kick this little you know baby eagle out of a nest to plummet to its seemingly death yet it's in that moment when it learns to fly and so many times I would have resigned to comfort and resort to, well, I'm just going to medicate right now with with chocolate or TV or whatever else that kind of, you know, calling a friend and to complain or I can lean into like, I'm going to be still. I'm going to trust it's going to be okay. <laughs> and just maybe, just maybe like this could be the the catalyst for me actually – going to that next level. Can you think of an experience like that for you where suddenly it's like, wow, this is amazing. One of the highest highs that you had, which I'm sure probably was preceded by, you know, some real like um, challenge or difficulty. Is there anything that comes to mind, maybe even just some of the highs and what and what you've, you've done or, or, or some of the uh, story of someone that just – just blew you away um well one of the first times that we expand well okay one of the first times we expanded in uganda we we expanded up into south sudan we kind of followed the lra as they got pushed out of uh, uganda and into south sudan so we went up into south sudan to start an office and you know it was it was just a really difficult process uh when i was moving my staff member up there to south sudan we literally got three flat tires uh, going up to um, up to South Sudan. We had to come back to Gulu one day, 
to get the tire fixed because we didn't have another spare. So um, then went the next day, we went a different uh, route up into South Sudan through a different border crossing. It was rainy season. We got stuck in the mud. We, and it's remote border. Um, the guard was, you know, trying to shake us down for more money, didn't let us pass. And, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. We ended up getting stuck uh, in the mud numerous times on the way up there. Finally got to this village that we were going to about uh, midnight and just exhausted. Been driving all day, all through the night. Get there at midnight. Uh, somebody lets us sleep in their mud hut for mm. the night. This family uh, gets out and lets us sleep in the mud hut. We wake up in the morning and open the curtain to this mud hut and step outside. And it was a beautiful, sunny day, beautiful mountains in the background. And exit out of this mud hut. And it just, we just knew it's right. This is what we're supposed to do. Like we, we persevered through all of that mm. uh, the night before, the couple of days before, just trying to get up there to South Sudan. Um, and and it all worked out, and the sun was shining, and it was just this amazing feeling of peace, knowing we're supposed to be here, mm. and the lives that are going to be transformed mm. because we persevered and because we're here. So that was just one story. And of course, when we moved to Iraq, that was that was amazing as well. Uh, when we expanded in uh, Uganda to Adjumani refugee settlement. When the this wave of South Sudanese refugees started coming down in 2014, we did not have the money to go up there, but we knew this was the the biggest refugee crisis on the planet right now. Mm. At this point, we have to do something, and we didn't have the money to do what we were currently doing. We were way behind on budget, but we went ahead and expanded up into Adjumani and had a real hard time with various issues up there and with vehicles breaking down and office and stuff. But then we did it all worked out. And we got the money, and it, that ended up being an incredible office for us. Wow. And, uh, and then, of course, moving to Iraq, you know, my, my kids loved Uganda. We spent eight years in Uganda. Yeah. My daughters, one of them has spent half her life there. The other one spent two-thirds of her life in Uganda. We had a community. We had friends. We had uh, – it just – we had our life was there. But then we sold everything in Uganda and moved to Iraq, and – I went there a month before my family to get us situated with a house and a car and mm -hmm. stuff. And, and then when my family arrived, it was just uh, – and that day I was down in Erbil waiting for them to come. And I downloaded some different uh, UN reports and things. And I was reading this report about the Yazidi and, and all the things they'd gone through and, and, and testimonials of people. And I remember sitting there in Erbil and I was just weeping uh, at these testimonials these stories of what these women had been through with ISIS. Mm. And my family was arriving, and I was just so glad we were there to mm. do this work, to work. That's why we exist. That's, mm. that's why Tutapona exists. Like, this is why I'm on the planet right now, is to do this work. And so then going and picking up my family and taking them home. And uh, it was just the most incredible feeling. Like, we're here. We're doing it. We get to be involved. We get to be part of the healing. We get to be part of uh, the restoration of communities and of families and of individual lives. And that was just the most incredible feeling mm. when my family arrived. And literally a week later, my girls loved it. They loved Iraq. They mm. said, we would pick 
if we could pick be in Uganda or here, I think we would pick here. Wow. And they had loved that that was their home. So that was an incredible experience that my family was so happy. They, they were loving that we could be, they could be in the work too because we were so close and that we were right where we were supposed to be. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's been a great adventure. It's been a great journey of just uh, watching God move and watching God do miracles. Well, Carl, we kind of um, are coming to a close here. Um, and I was thinking, just as, again, bringing me back to Iraq, and I remember um, I remember when you landed by yourself and were waiting for, for your family to come. I remember catching up with you know Bill there and and in such a short period of time, able to accomplish so much, to be able to set up an office there that is still running today. We met with the team last night over over Zoom, doing some further training. But both of us kind of out now families, you know, we had to leave it at a very similar time and moment. In, mm-hmm. And it wasn't an easy thing, decision for either us, of us to, to kind of uh, to, to leave. Um, the work continues in, in both what we have done. Um, and we find ourselves here in the West again. Uh, some would say strategically, so you can, you can continue to grow and expand and not maybe be so tunnel visioned into, into one location. Um, but COVID has kind of made things difficult for us to kind of, and for you in particular, to get out there. And I know that that's, that's really difficult. But um, without kind of harping too much on that and, and making so much of that, I'd love for you just to maybe just as we wrap things up, talk a bit about what, what's on the horizon. What's, what are some ways that if people are, are interested in learning about what's, what, what Tutapona has planned, um, could you just give us a snapshot of what you're up to now that you're back here, rebuilding, reharnessing, are you thinking about moving again? Or what, like, can you let us in on any little secrets, or or, or just inspire us as to to what you see on the horizon? Yeah, sure. Um, I do feel like I'm strategically placed here. I do believe that God brought us back, my family, to the U.S. Uh, as the CEO of the organization, it's just difficult to oversee all of the work when I'm running a country office in one location. So even though my family hated it when we moved back, we hated it. And I felt like I was, um, you know, throwing a temper tantrum like a spoiled little child saying, God, why, why? I want to be in Iraq. But mm-hmm. um, I can see now that this is probably a good place for us to be. Um, and um, it, some of the, the, you know, I want to expand anywhere there's a need. I yeah. would go anywhere that there's a need. I would love to see us expand in the Middle East. I think there's a lot of areas going on there. I would love to see us in places like Afghanistan or Pakistan, um, places where um, they maybe don't have the best view of Americans. Uh, they maybe aren't used to Americans coming and providing help or um, uh, peaceful solutions. Um, uh, I would love to go places like that. I would love to be in Greece, where uh, refugees are just getting off the boats on a place like Lesbos. Um, we've talked about South America with some of the conflicts that are going on there, at the border of Venezuela and Colombia. Mm-hmm. Venezuelans are 
fleeing and into Colombia. Is there a way that we, we could provide relief there? We do have some work going on here in the United States. We mm. opened an office in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul to try to work with refugees and immigrants that have come here. We would love to expand that and do more. Just last Sunday, a week ago, I was in another part of Wisconsin, four hours away. I was contacted by uh, a man who was resettled in that part of Wisconsin, four hours from me. He had been, a, he was a refugee from Congo, mm. and he was in Nakavali refugee settlement in Uganda and went through two Pono's programs. Wow. So he contacted me here in the U.S., asked me to go over there. He said, we have a ton of refugees here in Appleton, Wisconsin, a lot of Congolese refugees, Somali mm. refugees. And so um, could we do a program of two Pono over there? So we're looking at potentially other places in the U.S. as well where there might be needs. Um, but really our heart is to be overseas and operating in places where refugees have fled from war or conflict and see how can we just be a light mm. there and how can we bring uh, his love and his healing into those places? Oh, man. Well, I'm hoping we can continue to be a part of that too, Carl. Um, we are working together here and in in was a privilege to have you. And I think Grace came with you and Julie when you came out that time. You've had a, a big year too in your, you know, with your uh, daughter Emma getting married and and yep. there's just lots going on and I can see just the goodness of God on your life as you've had this season back in the States and um, I'm looking forward to just watching it grow, watching it expand and hopefully getting in on the action with you, mate. It's just going to be, uh, it's exciting. It really is. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And you too. Yeah, we're excited to be partnering with you guys and the great work that you're doing. Um, just can't wait to see where this all goes. Look, if people want to learn more, if they want to support you guys, they want to give to your work, they want to offer their expertise or, or just help you in any way, where, where do they go? What, what, what can they do? Yeah, the best way is our website, just tutapona.com. And uh, by the way, I never really said it earlier, what tutapona means. Mm. You know, tutapona is a Swahili word, and it means we will be healed. Mm. And just like you know, all the stuff we were talking about with uh, post-traumatic growth and you know, just being future-minded and look into the future that, yeah, today might be terrible, but we will be healed. My tomorrow will be better than my mm. today. And it's all about this, you know, uh, healing as a collective effort. Yes. Uh, the idea that it's not an individual pursuit. So we, we will be healed as Tutapona. So Tutapona.com is the best place for people to go and find out more. Um, go to Facebook or Instagram and um, check us out there as well. Man, Carl, it has been so good. You guys are on the front lines doing incredible work and you really are bringing justice and hope and healing in some of the most darkest um, parts of the world and you're bringing light and I love it and I'm so thankful to chat with you. I'm going to get you to stick around for a bit of a bonus round, which is uh, what my dear Patreon guests get uh, when they uh, when they support the podcast and come behind us. So 
We'll continue that conversation in a bit. But for now, thank you so much for being on the Justice Matters podcast, Carl. Appreciate you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Carl Gady. If you want to learn more about the work of Tutapona, head on over to their website. It's tutapona.com. And of course, as always, if you want to hear the rest of my conversation with Carl, become a patron. All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash justice matters. You pay $5 a month to support the podcast to help us keep pumping out these videos and sharing these conversations. And you automatically get access to these bonus content interviews that I have with all of my guests, the behind the scenes extras. You can interact with me as well as the podcast, just that little bit more. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash justice matters just to do that. You can even support us for as little as $1 a month. Now, I also want to say a special thank you to everyone that sponsored the You Belong Dive to Thrive that we just participated in this weekend. And oh my goodness, we're so thankful for the support. Jumping out of a plane was a first and an incredible experience. Now, for the formalities of the show, I'd like to say special mention thanks to music artist John Art and David Gungle, also known as The Brilliance for the music track that we use on the show. Go check them out. The Brilliance, wherever you find good music, I'm sure you find their work. And of course, my mate Jose Biotto, a special shout out to you, mate, for your audiovisual expertise in producing the show. And lastly, if you're enjoying the show, the podcast, would you consider rating it? Maybe leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, subscribing on YouTube. There's so many ways you can share and get the word out and help us in this way. Thank you so, so much. Please join me again soon for another episode of Justice Matters. I am your host, Tim Buxton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>